0: Welcome back to Delta Waterfowl's The Voice of the Duck Hunter podcast. On today's episode, I sat down with Ray Penny Jr. and Ben Half to discuss the storied history and recent resurgence of the American-made decoy company, G&H Decoys. With 2% of every purchase supporting waterfowl, conservation runs deep at G&H. With that introduction, let's bring in today's guests. Ray Penny, Ben Half, welcome to the Delta Waterfowl podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us, Joel.
0: So Ray, you're the CEO and president of G and H Decoys. I am. Not gonna bury that lead. And Ben, you are the director of sales. That's correct. That is awesome. So G and H is a familiar brand to me. I suspect it's a familiar brand to many. I think some I think one of you guys, did you ask the question last night at the banquet, who shot their first duck over G and H decoys? Yeah, that was me.
1: It was me. How many hands did you get? Uh, we got a few. I didn't. I didn't take the time to individually count, but uh, you know, busy room, a lot of people talking. But I felt like of the folks that were paying attention, I felt like we had more than half of them put their hand up. That's amazing. That's a great question. That's a bold question. It is a bold question, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, there's a lot of folks who who got started on uh, their dad or their granddad's G and decoys. It was such a ubiquitous name for so many years, and uh, the thing that we hear over and over. I mean, how many times did we hear it today? Where people come up to the booth and say, oh man, you know, my granddad still has those decoys and they're still in the attic and they still look great. And I, I got a lot of fond memories and there's there's just this connection. It was one of the things that appealed to us when we decided to try to take the company and, and turn it around was that there's such a human connection to the brand and to the product and, you know, it looked at different opportunities to do different things in the outdoor industry, but never found anything where people had so much connection and so much identity to a brand as, as there is to GNH. And we love that because it gives us these opportunities to have all these interactions, talk to folks, hear the stories, learn about the way people are doing things uh, and interact with a, a product that we might not otherwise have, have gotten the chance to, to have.
0: You know, I'm gonna consider the three of us pretty lucky right now. The show shut down for the day. so. There's a, a quietness in the air, that is really pleasing to my ears. <laughs> I have to I have to mention that I I, I can't let it go. But I want to get to know the 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 men behind the company. I to I want the listeners to get to know both of you as people. Ray, do you mind if we start with you? Can you give a little bit of your background, your yeah, upbringing, sure. you know, your career track? You have an
1: interesting career move. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, I'm originally a native Houstonian. And uh, grew up in Houston and hunted the Middle Texas Coast as a younger man. And uh, I, I'm a bit of an adult-onset hunter. Uh, didn't really start duck hunting until I was kind of in my early 20s. And uh, got out of, uh, went to school at Oklahoma State University, met and married the love of my life. Uh, went, to, went back to Houston and worked for Orvis for a few years. And I'd always wanted to be a United States Marine. And so I called in sick to work one day and went down to the recruiter and literally just signed on the dotted line one day. And uh, then went home and told my wife that I had joined the Marine Corps. And went all over the country, did that for seven years, wonderful experience. And uh, finally, you know, our family had grown, decided it was time to maybe settle down and stop stop being gone all the time. And uh, so we made the decision to move back to Tulsa to be near Maggie's family. And... Uh, In Tulsa, went back to school, went to law school, uh, worked as a first job out of law school as a prosecutor on the gang and organized crime unit at the Tulsa County District Attorney's Office. It's the only job I ever had that was just like the movies, um, where I got to go on raids with the SWAT team. I wasn't kicking in the doors, but I was there to help collect evidence and interview witnesses and advise the cops on how we needed to put the case together. Uh, And then I would get to take those cases and try them at at jury trial. And uh, I got to try 14 jury, 14 felony jury trials in three years. Wow. Yeah. Just had a great time and uh, eventually made the decision to go into private commercial practice, you know, a lot of civil law stuff, business law. And that was, was fun and exciting and lucrative. Uh, And the the GNH thing kind of fell, uh, fell into my lap. And it was one of those deals where I felt like I'd, I'd, Regardless, we didn't know what was going to happen. You can't see the future. There's no crystal ball. But I didn't want to get to be age 65 and say, man, I wish I had tried to turn around g and I wish somebody had done that or I wish I had taken that opportunity. And uh, so I had the, made the tough decision of going to the partners at the law firm and saying, you know, thank you for everything you've done for me, but I need to go chase this. And uh, so they asked me to actually, I still have a desk at the law firm. I don't go there hardly ever. Uh, they call me with, you know, questions about the stuff that I specialize in. Uh, but G&H is my, is my day-to-day. Uh, you know,
0: I find that, I do find it interesting in that, you know, you, you put out a an, uh, an announcement for a new position that you want to hire someone. You get a certain set of applications. You put that advertisement out three months later, you're going to get a different different set of applications. Sure. Not everyone is available at that moment. What was it about your life that made you available to switch from law to I'm going to be the CEO and president of GNH decoys.
1: Yeah, um, well, there's a lot of weird things happening in the country with COVID, and COVID kind of created a weird opportunity for GNH to come back that it would not have, have otherwise had. The shipping crisis, um, the fact that, you know, when the lockdown happened and, and COVID happened, all kinds of people went back outdoors. And a lot of these same guys, and we've heard this story a bunch of times, a lot of these same guys who had those old GNH decoys, and maybe they hadn't picked them up in 15 or 20 years, they had a son who said, you know, Dad, we've got those decoys in the garage. Uh, you know, can we take those out and try to hunt with them? And and I think that, for a lot of people, sparked sort of a renaissance of getting out and duck hunting again. So the demand for the product was there. Uh, the shipping crisis was preventing a lot of our, our competitors from getting their products into the United States, and it kind of created this, uh, this window where we looked at this and thought, okay, this is viable. Um, at the same time, you know, my legal career was in a place where I had kind of established myself, Um, but this unique opportunity was here and and there was, there wasn't anybody at the law firm that said to me, you know, don't do that or you can't do that. Everybody kind of universally said like, yeah, I would probably make the same decision if I was in your shoes. And so, you know, the, the factors all sort of, I don't mean to get, you know, all religious on your podcast or anything, but I guess the Lord just put all the pieces in place on the board to make it possible for me to, to take the opportunity. The only rule of the podcast
0: is surprisingly
1: no swearing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> we've managed to abide with that so far i was going to say maybe i don't need a mic
0: <laughs> and it's not my rule but but I uh, uh, probably not a bad one it's a great probably rule no, yeah it's a great rule.
2: yeah so ben let's get to meet you well thanks for having me um uh, man i guess i'll start where ray did uh, kind of like we started together i was an oklahoma state grad as well and um you know at that time in my life i was a wildlife ecology major and <clears throat> wanting to work in conservation and work in actually wetlands development is what I thought I was going to do. And so uh, believe it or not, I worked for Delta shortly after getting out of, out of college. And it was a term job and it was a good job and we worked hard and I enjoyed it. And I got to work with ducks every day. And that was really where I knew I was headed. I knew I wanted to be around waterfowl, wanted to be around people. But for me, it was about hunting and about what I could do to make hunting better and how to be a part of the natural resource and, um, you know, that summer when I was working for Delta, I was also sending applications around the country trying to get a, a more permanent position somewhere and be part of something. And lo and behold, uh, Oklahoma Department of Wildlife offered me a job to be an Oklahoma game warden. And it's, it's interesting now that I look back on it because at that time in my life, I wasn't sure I was the kind of guy, and I'm going to use like air quotes here, that should be in law enforcement. Because, you know, as a young man looking over it and seeing a uniformed officer, I, I, I kind of figured this person was rigid and really straight laced and really everything was, uh, you know, uh, by the book. And I'd, at that time in my life, I wasn't living that way, you know, and I didn't I didn't feel like I had the right personality to go out and, you know, be some kind of tough guy. And, and and I definitely didn't feel like I could go go in a courtroom and make any kind of case or anything like that. But I had applied for the job and I and I knew an Oklahoma game warden that served to some extent as a mentor for me. And I thought the career itself was interesting. And I definitely saw the value in what those enforcers around the country are doing to protect our resources. I was also working with a lot of really, really talented young scientists at Delta who were probably going to be way better as a biologist than I was. Way better as a wetlands manager. Way better studying ducks and understanding. And I recognized pretty quick, maybe my skill set is better used somewhere else. Uh, So I took the job at Oklahoma as a game warden. And I never looked back and, and nearly 20 years went by in a couple blinks of an eye. Um, and I tried to continue to follow my passion for waterfowl, um, the way I worked and the, and the projects I tackled and the training I sought and the expertise I developed. And without going down a podcast in itself on that, by the time I was ready to leave that position, I was one of the guys that spent a lot of time in the marsh, uh, working duck hunters, being around duck hunters, um, for the protection element of it, and also the, to be an asset for those guys. A lot of folks, especially now, uh, getting into the outdoors is new for them. or, they're, or they're, You know, waterfowling, some folks will say, is a young man's game. And you do see a lot of people that, that get exposed to hunting somehow, and the next thing you know, they really, they really buy into waterfowl hunting. And I think it's the social element for the most part. But the short version is there's a lot of guys in the field that just need someone around that can help. And I, for a long time, enjoyed being out there with them, you know, if they were causing a problem, I was going to solve it, and I knew the community wanted that. But also the guy that was novice and needed some advice or, you know, something as simple as I'm there to make a license contact, and I can tell the poor young man's just set up completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Or there's a glaring mistake, but they literally don't know it. And so during the course of a license contact, you can seek to see the problem, and you can realize that they might ask for help. Well, would, you know, would you give us any advice? Or is there a better place to go or whatever? So they would often open that door, and I always enjoyed being a part of that. Um, and then for, for fellow officers, I tried to take my interest and my expertise and pass it on. Uh, there, there toward the end of my career, I did a lot of training. I was part of a team that wrote a course about waterfowl enforcement, and we tried to be proactive and help wardens that had been around a long time and wardens that were brand new both get better at being in the marsh and helping you know, with the enforcement that goes with with all the regulations for for hunting waterfowl. So I'm proud of that. I was excited about that. And we'll tell you a real short story, but how did I get to G&H? How does somebody go from being an Oklahoma game warden in in a very comfortable career, very happy career, feeling like you're making an impact? How do you switch gears? Um, The short version is I was was getting to the point in my life where there were other things tugging at me, you know, raising kids, uh, being a bigger part of my community for certain things, that law enforcement career is very demanding. Emotionally, it's, it's demanding from time standpoint. So I was looking for something else to some extent. And uh, I took a guy hunting who was a retired Oklahoma game warden. He was actually the game warden in the county where I grew up. And, uh, he, you know, he doesn't duck hunt a lot. He thinks he does, but he really doesn't. But he, he crawled in my boat one morning, and I, we drove out to a place, and we're throwing decoys out in the lake. And in the dark, he's got a headlamp on. He looks down, and he says, oh, these are. These are G&H decoys, like it's some proclamation, you know. And I said, well, yeah, Carlos, that's, uh, that's what I hunt with. You know, I'm from Sand Springs. The factory at Henrietta is only about an hour away. For no other reason than just a local connection, I always felt proud to rep G&H and, and hunt with them. And they held up for me. They were a great product. I mean, I've got some now that, that I had in high school. So I tell him in that moment, yeah, this is, this is what I hunt with. This is almost, almost exclusively what I own, and I've been using these a long time. Well, he never says another word. And later in the hunt, he mentions the decoys again, and he says something about, did you know they're, they're turning that place around? And I didn't. And I said, no, I hadn't heard that. I said, in fact, I, I was assuming they were going to be out of business any day because it was very obvious to anyone, you know, who looks for decoys, who buys decoys, and especially folks in Oklahoma, that the company's footprint had, had all but disappeared. You weren't, you weren't in a dealer. You didn't see them in the magazine anymore. Um, even, even working, I didn't see... I didn't see any new ones in boats anymore. You know, I'd see some old ones. But anyway, he tells me about this guy named Ray Penny that he knew um, from working in, in wildlife prosecution and working at the courthouse. And he said, Ray Penny and his team, they're going to they're gonna turn that thing in. They're, they're going to they're gonna get their hands on it. They, and and they, had, they, they were well underway of, of acquiring what was Gnh and and starting this project. And he says, you ought to meet Ray. So Carlos lines up this meeting. And, you know, and in that conversation when he tells me about, about what Ray and, and Ray's team were trying to do, before I knew what I was saying, I'm telling him, you know, I want to be part of that. I don't, I don't know what I could do to help, but I got some ideas. I think I know where we could get started. And, and through Carlos, Ray and I met, and I shared some of those ideas with, with Ray. Turns out Ray had already been hearing that for months and months and months. I didn't have anything profound that I said uh, other than that I was willing to be some kind of help in. You hit the fast-forward button, here we are.
1: Well, there's a good detail that you passed over, and that's that we actually met for the first time at a Delta banquet in Broken Arrow. That is true. Oh, really? That yeah. is true. And the funny part of the story is that I brought my wife to the Delta banquet, and Carlos was there. Carlos, I think got, he got a table for us. Is that what he there did? Was a table, and there were some extra tickets. That's we pulled right. Carlos in to help us with G&H, and he got a table for us, and there were some extra tickets. And so um, we walked in, and my wife Maggie and I were standing there, and this guy sitting next to me here with the red beard, uh, you know, fit-looking law enforcement guy walks in, and he sees my wife, and he goes, Maggie. And Maggie says, Ben? And I said, and at first I'm thinking, who the hell is this rascal that just walked up here and talking to my wife? <laughs> and uh, discovered that this was the Ben half that I was that I was going to meet. And then discovered that, uh, I guess, you know, the connection goes way back because Ben used to date my wife's college roommate and best friend. And so Ben's known my wife since they were, I mean, middle school kids. Well, yeah, absolutely. We, we dated You know, when we were
2: very young, actually way back into early, early high school. So, and I had the time when Carlos said I have a friend named Ray, that connection wasn't made. So I didn't know I was coming there. And right off the bat, you know, obviously he's married to Maggie, and I've known her at that point for 20-something years. We had an immediate immediate connection, and just like a a spark in in dry grass, man. Flames started flying. So
1: so
0: that was the
2: moment. That was that was the first piece of the puzzle. Yeah, that's right.
1: And it was, you know, give me a warm fuzzy, too, because my wife said, yeah, I've known him for a long time. He used to date my best friend, and he's a stand-up guy, and you can trust him. And Ben did have a lot of great ideas, and, and the thing that I had never considered, you know, we didn't have anybody. That, I mean, we'd owned the company for a couple of weeks at that point. We didn't have anybody that was yet picked to do the, the sales job, and we can talk about what was going on at that time. But at this point, we were still just trying to dig through 89 years' worth of garbage in the factory to figure out what we had. We bought the thing side unseen with no books, with no records. And uh, so we're still putting a lot of pieces together. And, you know, Ben shows up, and and he's like, you know, Carlos is like, Ben would be a great salesman. And I thought, okay, game warden, he didn't have any sales experience, which turned out to not be true at all. But then I realized, Ben, Ben said, he said, look, I've looked in thousands of duck boats. He's like, I know what the trends are. I know what decoys people are carrying. I know how they're using them. I know how people want to rig them now. I know where they're hunting. And it's true, Ben had... 17 years at that point of experience, I mean, you know, decades as a hunter, but, but solid 17 continuous years of looking in people's duck boats and seeing, you know, what are the trends and what's, how has rigging changed and, you know, what, what does a good keel look like on a decoy versus a bad keel on a decoy? So Ben's not only great as a salesman because Ben can go out there. I mean, what is sales? Sales is just figuring out what the need is and meeting that need. Ben can go to our customers, our, our retailers and the stores that carry us and say, based on your area... This is what I think your customers are buying. Let's, let's fit your store with the product that will sell the best. But at the same time, on the, we've made a lot of product development decisions in the last 18 months, two years. And Ben's, I mean, I guess you're kind of the de facto uh, director of product development, too, because Ben has all these ideas about, wait, 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 do this, don't do that. And nine times out of ten, he's right. I have to back up.
0: Do you remember the project that you were working on for Delta?
2: I do. We were we, we were dragging uh the prairie with chains and and and, ch- and studying that success.
0: Who was the student that you were uh, a guy named
2: Matt Piron.
0: Yep. Would have I been heard. about
2: two thousand and six. Yep, yep.
0: I I started at Delta in two thousand and one, so I, I yeah, I was actually very much a part of that from the from the trapping side. Tried to maintain independence from the, the student simply because You're doing a management action, and you want the student to study that management action without bias or without um, leading someone to to a conclusion. So, yeah, well, that's awesome.
2: It was fun. I I have very fond memories of that experience. You know, I I grew up in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. Both of my parents worked. We didn't do a lot of world traveling. We didn't do a – I mean, a vacation for us was a weekend at the lake 30 minutes away. So for me to pack a bag and spend a long summer in North Dakota, I might as well have been in Africa.
0: Oh, I bet. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. So I would imagine that there's a lot of American pride listening to this podcast. And so we're going to go there. g decoys, both the oldest and the only decoy company manufacturing in the United States.
2: Is that right? We like to use the word major manufacturing because there's no doubt hand carvers. Oh. There's no doubt some project guys that are doing some really cool work around the country. Uh, but we're the only major manufacturer building duck and goose decoys
1: left in the U.S. And not just that, but that has 100% of our manufacturing in the United States. There are some companies that have some manufacturing in the United States or they have uh, some assembly in the United States to get parts. But we go from, I mean, you can see our booth from where we're sitting right here. We go from the raw plastic pellets and and paint components it's not even fully mixed paint yet we do that mix inside our own factory we go from those those raw materials to the the finished decoys that you see uh people walking away with today from our booth all under one roof in henriette oklahoma how do you guys i mean, boy
0: rabbit hole diving down it sure. <laughs> how, how do you compete you know i mean everything i hear Cheaper overseas, go there, bring it back, sell it for a higher profit. How do you compete with that? How do you stay relevant?
2: Some of that is what Ray mentioned right off the bat. Uh, there's, there have been some trend changes. Uh, some of it's customer demand. Yeah, um, I, I think that's the biggest factor. Uh, we do see a trend in the entire outdoors industry, fishing included. There, there is a nature among a lot of people right now to buy something a little better quality, something they're going to get longer use out of. And they're not afraid to spend a little more money on it. And the best example I can give you, and I'm not, I'm not in any way sponsored promoting it otherwise, the Yeti cooler. Mm-hmm. Not that long ago, to ask someone to pay nearly $400 for a, a cooler seemed absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But look what that company's done. And look how many other companies have followed that path. And there's some, I don't know how many brand names are out there with a really tough, durable, high-quality cool. cooler. Yeah. Not that long ago, we were buying a very inexpensive nearly disposable cooler every time we needed one, mm-hmm. right? And look at that entire shift. We're seeing that in waiters, We're seeing it in camouflage and, and clothing types. Fishing industry sees it. We've inherited some of that general nature. Folks are hungry for something to perform better and perform longer and to be much more dependable and durable. So that's what we already made. That's, that's what GNH decoys are. So they do cost a little more money. That helps. Um, I wouldn't say we're really competitive. If, if if a business is looking at carrying our product and they're just making decisions on dollars and cents, we're not competitive. Okay. We're going to be the last one they pick up. They're going to make less money on our box of decoys than they will something else. The difference is if they don't have our box of decoys and that's what the customer wanted, then the customer doesn't come in the front door. They go to the neighbor's business. And so they don't... <laughs> You don't get to sell at all. Yeah, right. And, and that helps a lot. Um, the other thing was, like Ray mentioned, with COVID, the shipping, I'm going to say shipping crisis, that showed how sensitive we can be when, when, all, we're, when all we're handling, all we're using, all we're selling, are things that we're waiting on. Such a major piece of the puzzle, such, such large, um,
1: so many logistics involved in shipping, you're, you're, you're at risk if that comes off the rails. And, I mean, Ben's hit the nail on the head, right? Those are those are probably two of the biggest factors. Um, people people demand and they want a better quality product, and we have that reputation for durability and quality that goes back decades. I mean, longer than Ben or I have been alive. And uh, so people know that of all the decoys that you can go out and spend your hard-earned money on, you know, look, we're not the cheapest. We're not the most expensive decoy, but we're also not the cheapest decoy out there. Um, if you buy in our decoys and you're spending – uh, let's say you're spending the same amount, right so a dozen of our new uh, premier series Magnum mallards is going to cost you two hundred and twenty nine dollars uh, from the store or from our website or wherever you buy it if if you're paying the same amount for a decoy and let's say you're only getting three seasons out of that decoy uh, math and public you're spending i don't know what seventy something dollars a year for those decoys if you're buying our decoys for the exact same price, but you get ten seasons out of them mm-hmm. you're spending twenty three dollars a season true. It's a whole lot it's also less work it's less hassle and i think the customer understands that uh and that's that's a real driving factor for our product um and that i think another piece that ben didn't didn't talk about a whole lot is a lot of that american-made pride has really been coming back i think in the last few years people care about where their dollars go they care about uh you know what happens to the money that they spend and i think that people are willing to pay a few extra dollars for a good quality product if they know that that product is is supporting i mean we employ several dozen people in Henrietta, Oklahoma. Those people get paid a paycheck. They go to the local grocery store. They go to the local coffee shop. Their kids, you know, buy clothes at the at the local clothing store and in the shoe store. And that money goes out through the community and I think there's a lot of people nowadays that feel good about spending their dollar. People are more conscious about the way they spend money. They feel good about spending their dollars in a way that uh that you know, makes an impact on their community, uh, and, and not only that, but makes an impact in, in conservation. We, the whole history of our company is that we were founded in 1934. g stands for, before we started the rolling the tape, I think you were talking about not knowing what you know, the origin of or the name G&H right. was. G&H stands for Gazalski and Hutton, and the company was actually founded as B&G Goose Decoy Company for Buchanan and Gazalski, and the Buchanan family regretfully went belly up in the Depression company was founded in 1934. And the thing, the, the sort of the, the, the factor that caused John Gozalski to start the company was that FDR signed the Duck Stamp Act, okay. which made it illegal to use live birds as decoys anymore. And so this guy and how he got the idea in uh, 1934, Oklahoma, which was the dead middle of the Dust Bowl in the Depression. But he thought, man, I'm going to make decoys for people. And so he started making these goose. He got a patent for a paper mache goose decoy. And we the goose shells that we sell, different materials. Times have changed, right? But the contours for that decoy are identical to the 1934 really? contours that, that John Gazalski came up with. He started making these decoys. They became so popular that people would start writing to the Henrietta, Oklahoma postmaster and saying, please deliver this letter to the Henrietta that makes those decoys. And that's why the product became known as the Henrietta. Uh Buchanan went, uh, his family went belly up in the Depression, unfortunately. John Gazalski uh, made the decision to go to his father-in-law, J.V. Hutton, and ask for some seed capital. And so his father-in-law joined the business, and G.N.H. stands for Gazalski and Hutton, uh, son-in-law, father-in-law. And uh, the business grew from there. John, uh, eventually, uh, Mr. Hutton passed away. A few years later, uh, John ran the company successfully for decades. He passed it on to his son, uh, Dick Gazalski, and Dick passed away shortly before we acquired the company, uh, a few months before before we bought the company. And uh, he passed away in January of 21, and we ended up buying the company from his estate in December of 21. Was there an interruption
0: in production?
1: So there was. And, you know, the you asked earlier about, you know, what kind of created the opportunity for me to get into this. Uh, I happened to be headed to court in a town called McAllister, which is just down the road from us. And uh, I had to drive from Tulsa past the decoy factory. And being a Houstonian and living in Tulsa, I have driven past that factory hundreds of times over the course of 15 years. It's possible that it was thousands of times, you know, multiple times a year to go see my my parents. And I had always begged my wife, of, please stop in the G&H factory. Please let me just stop in there. And she would never let me. It became a running joke. If we would drive past the factory at, at midnight on our way back to Tulsa, she would say, you know, the kids are asleep. Why don't you stop in there in the G&H factory and you can pick out some decoys for yourself? So it became kind of a running joke. And uh so finally I decided on that on the way to Court and McAllister, I said, I'm gonna stop in there. I don't have anybody in the truck with me. I'm gonna stop and go in. And I went in and the like the showroom was falling apart. The taxidermy was literally looked like zombies. It was rotting off the ceiling. The ceiling was caved in. There was this nasty old fountain that was all mildewy and gross. It stank in there. And I thought, man, is this did I walk into an abandoned building? And uh Derek, our general manager, walked out, he's still with us. And I, I introduced myself, I shook his hand and I said, What's Going on in here, like I haven't seen your product in stores in years. You're not in the Max catalog anymore. You're not in Cabela's anymore. Like what's what's happened? And he said basically that you know the company had fallen on hard times. Uh, they had shuttered the factory. I think three years before, is that right, Ben? Three so, years they had shut it down. They hadn't made a product. They were just selling existing stock, and they were down to two employees. It was Derek and a bookkeeper, and they were just struggling. I mean, they were making just enough selling existing stock to like pay their their salaries. And pay enough electricity to run two offices in the, the law office complex on the front of the building there. And I, I don't know what possessed me, but without even thinking about it, I whipped out my business card from the law firm. And I handed it to him, and I said, well, I'm going to buy this company. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anybody else in an ownership group with me. I didn't know Ben yet. And uh, he said, okay. And I said, please give this card to the owner. I'd really like to talk to him about, because in that moment, I, I thought, I don't know, I thought to myself, there has got to be a way that we can turn this thing around. This is an American institution. And uh, that was in October of, of 2020, I think. Yeah, it was in October of 2020. Didn't hear a word. And then I was working from home that one day in January, and I happened to type into Google. And I thought, let's just see what, this, what the deal is with this old man, Dick Gozalski. So I typed into to Google, uh, Dick Gozalski, GNH decoys. And the very first search response was his obituary. And he had died three days before. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I thought, oh, no, you know, missed that's my chance. Why he, that's why he didn't call me. It's over. It's done. And it made sense why he didn't call me either. Um, he, uh, he had passed away. I, I literally jumped in the truck that day. I drove down to the factory. And I, I walked in, and Derek saw me. And I said, do you remember me? And he said, yes. And I said, how come nobody called me? And he said, Just, the old man was sick, and he was dying, and, you know, lots of other things going on. And I said, what's going to happen? And he said, we don't. nobody knows. And so he gave me the phone number for uh, Dick's lawyer, who was handling his estate. And I immediately called that guy, and I think those guys got sick of talking to me over the next two weeks, but the long and short it was that Joel, they were just going to chop it up for scrap. There was no plan; they were literally going to scrap the metal, they were going to have a big warehouse sale, you could go buy equipment, you could buy decoys, you could buy whatever you wanted, and they were going to fold the thing down wow and uh, so you know the the chess pieces kind of came together in the right spots on the board. We put together an ownership group, we raised the capital to go purchase the company, and then um it took us a year to close on. It's a whole separate podcast this is the year that it took us to close on the business. But we bought the company and then um, it was me and uh, Derek and a bookkeeper. And then it was like, okay, now what? And uh, we had to go out. I mean, I was going to the Taco Bell and asking people at the Taco Bell, did you used to work at G&H? And the guy was like, yes. And I said, you know, I'm a crazy, you never met me before. You have no idea who I am. Here's this crazy story I'm going to tell you. And we'd like you to come back and work at GNH. And this guy, Jeff, he looked at me really funny, and he said, he put his hand up, you know, to sort of gesture, and he goes, one moment. And he turned around, and he ran in the back, and I didn't see him for like five minutes, and I thought maybe he had ghosted me, or he thought I was crazy, and then he came back out of the back of the Taco Bell, and he said, okay, I just quit. When do we start? So the response from the former employees was like super strong right away. People believed in it. They wanted to come do it. We didn't have any trouble at all putting the band back together, and uh, So we got, we got people back to the factory, and then we spent between uh, January, the, I think we got to, got to working on it on January the 12th, and we finally turned on a machine to make a decoy sometime around the f- first week of May. And uh, we hauled off nine 40-foot roll-offs full of garbage out of the factory. We had to strip and take apart and rebuild every machine um, to get things working again. We had to figure out how much plastic we had. We had to find the molds. We discovered molds that we didn't even know we had purchased. Um, Stuff from, you know, molds that were that M4 decoy that we have. And we actually decided to continue making them. That M4 mold was cast in 1962. Wow. And uh, so it was a a huge amount of of labor, but it was a real labor of love. And uh, everything kind of came back together. That rebuild, though, gave us the opportunity to focus the company once again on the quality that had made us popular all those decades ago there were a number of years when the company fell on hard time and we hear this we've heard this numerous times today when we're not we're, we're going to hug this this is not something we're afraid of there were a number of years when when dick gazalski was trying to save the company and he thought that the correct choice was to put less plastic in the decoy and thin the paint and try to reduce costs to make himself more competitive from a price perspective um the market was probably different then also and so as a result of those decisions there are a few years of HD course where the quality was poor and the paint didn't stick the way it was supposed to and the plastic the keels cracked in some places and the plastic was thin in a lot of spaces when we did the rebuild though derek the general manager he agreed to stay on that was one of my one of my real uh things was like i wasn't going to do this if i couldn't keep derek there because he knows so much about uh, what's going on how would on. you start from scratch like that right yeah, exactly not possible and uh so Derek went and got Dennis. Dennis is, Dennis is now in his 37th year with G&H. Is that right, Ben? Somewhere in there. Yeah. Went and got Dennis. Went and got some of these old hands. And they all universally agreed, we don't want to do this if we can't do it right. And we can't go back to the way that we used to make them 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so I said, yeah, no argument for me at all. And so when we rebuilt all those machines, we reset everything to pour a thicker shot of plastic. We found the old paint recipes. We started to mix the old paint recipes the way they used to be mixed. So kind of what you see now with our new products with the Premier Series is the first new product that the company's had since 1996. We're using all of the old methods that existed before 1996. We're using all of the old paint recipes. We're using all of the old processes. So you get the quality, but you get a fresh, updated look. So with those,
0: if not tonight, tomorrow. Sure. I'm going to take a peek at them and be respectful of your time. Yeah, yeah. But the will they resemble... Some like, would, Will I see a resemblance in those decoys to the decades-ago versions?
1: You will, and we're very conscious of the fact that when you buy Gnh, and if, if you have a, a, an identity or a commitment to Gnh, you're looking for something maybe a little bit different than you're getting from some of the other decoy companies. There are a lot of decoy companies in the market, and, and Joel, to be clear, beautiful products. Beautiful decoys, well-made products. I'm not trying to throw shade on anybody else's decoy. But if you're coming to buy GNH, you're buying something a little bit different than what everybody else offers. So when we made the decision to do sort of this this reset on the quality and the reset on the look and feel of the decoy also, we had to find somebody who who had some of the same shared values that we have and who had some of the same, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for, Ben? Had the same ideals about, about decoys and hunting that we did. And so we searched and we went through a lot of, of decoy carvers. We had a... a very prominent decoy carver from another company, come to us and ask if he could have the job because he really loved the Made in America part of what we were doing. We eventually settled on uh, Luke Costello, who came with us to the show here, uh, because Luke and his style embodies so much of what people associate with G&H. He's a third-generation carver. He's won multiple—I'll screw up what the correct titles of the championships are, but he's won multiple national-level competitions. Uh, I think eight is the number. Uh, I, I'm not a, a carved decoy guru, me either, the way that Luke is. He'd be cringing if he was listening to He's probably going to his gonna push through me in the his, face tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but Luke Luke had a lot of those ideals that we did. His decoys were beautiful. They had detail, but they weren't like... Uh, he wasn't trying to recreate anatomical perfection.
0: It wasn't something that you sat on the shelf. It right. Was
1: it's a working decoy. There was some some artistry to it, though, and there was some style to it, though beyond just let's make i mean you could go get a a taxidermy mounted duck and you could 3d scan it and you could make a perfect replica of a duck but that's not what we set out to do and that's not what lucas set out to do we wanted there to be some feel of heritage but at the same time that feel of heritage to have the detail and the precision and the things that we know the younger hunter is looking for well
0: i i think water the stage of waterfowling that we're in right now heritage it's there's a Reconnection with the heritage, the, the camouflage that you're wearing right now, definitely. Right, right, the you know the the old school duck camo that my dad wore when I was a kid, you know, and 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 G and H, you know. I think we could find other examples of just kind of reconnecting with our heritage, some old A five shotguns or things like that. Yeah. It's, you know, it just is what it is. What do you think? So you know, American made, love it. Plus plus, you know the the durability, uh, the thicker shell, the, the thicker decoy. What are some of the other
2: selling points of size? C&H? Size, size for sure, and it's it's always a great discussion on personal preference. A lot of a lot of people think I'm ridiculous when I'll make the case for the super magnum, you know, the biggest option every time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reality is, when the other company's products are made so far away, and the, and they're dealing with shipping logistics, <clears throat> it looks to me like they have made decisions related to size to try and. You know, increase the bang for the buck as far as getting A to B. They can get... A
0: Decreased shipping costs. You can fit de- decrease shipping container.
2: costs. Boxes being smaller, cheaper to ship. That's all there is to it. So, in general, and I, I don't have everybody's decoy laying here on the table as I analyze them, but in general, in a given apples to apples, we're a little bigger. Just across the board. Sure. And I don't mean just the super mag, but what we would call a, a magnum, or what we would call a standard size, if you take just about anybody else's in the same species, we're just a little bigger. And for those hunters that prefer a little more, you know, footprint on the water, we have what they're looking for.
0: Okay. I thought you would have said paint. I think the paint is... When they
2: talk about our paint, they quickly get to the point where they say it lasts longer. And what they usually mean is it sticks on the decoy better. It doesn't flake off. It doesn't chip. It doesn't peel. So, you know, they can get it dirty. These guys, duck hunters are the best in the world at getting dirty, period. Uh, they're even better than little kids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can get everybody's paint dirty but when they need to clean them they can scrub them they can, they can take our decoys and they can scrub them they can break a power washer out and they can blast them and there aren't any fails as a result of that um, and then years and years and years of continued use regardless of how they handle them they hold up very well we'll hear that all day long now we may have an individual come along and say that you know they, they would appreciate this color here be a little more like that color or Something like that here and there. And, uh, again, that boils down to one person's opinion or, or personal preference or maybe the region where he's finding that particular species. Um, we, we battle that best we can, uh, but the reality is they, they do they do appreciate the pain, and it's, it's usually related to some stage or some aspect of durability.
0: Well, looking forward to getting my hands on do You guys, I don't know if you can bottle this 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 vibe that you guys give off i mean you guys are obviously proud this the story you need to make a short film about this i think
2: it's easy to get behind we've been sitting here today at the trade show we've got a 10 by 10 booth over here and all day long one after another folks come up and they pick up the decoy and if they're familiar with it at all it usually followed by some sort of testimony and that's fun. And, and, and it is easy to be proud of. And truthfully, Ray and I haven't been involved long enough to really have any responsibility related to that at all. Right? We, we inherited that. That was here when we got here. Yeah. Uh, we're proud of that. We're proud to stand behind where it is now. We're looking forward to where it's going. And we're working our butts off to make sure those kinds of things are still said about it long after we're not involved anymore, long after we're gone.
0: Yep. Ray, are you okay if we talk about what happened last night yeah absolutely yeah I, I think it's it's really impressive it you know it, no matter what conservation organization you, you would have done something like this for it would have been impressive but you did it for Delta so I, i'm obviously biased but last night we had the duck hunters grand banquet it was like 800 people were in there something like that big biggest banquet i've ever been to is large yeah and we actually sold out we actually had to turn some wow. people
1: away which was which is interesting but Ray, you stood up,
0: to, go ahead, take it from here. What?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we we donated this little package. Uh, I guess we'll talk about the package in a second. But I stood up and I, I started by asking, you know, look, for us, I, and if you had to pick a theme about what we've been talking about for the last however long we've been talking here, it's, it's, generational right it's like this this sport or pastime whatever you want to call waterfowl hunting it's generational and we do it because maybe it wasn't passed down by by a dad or a father but it was passed down by somebody who took the care to give it to someone in the next generation and the only way that it's going to survive is if we continue that generational approach and we think about the future instead of just thinking about my ducks and what i'm going to kill this season i need to be thinking about the seasons that my sons and daughters are going to enjoy in a few years. And so I, I just stood up by asking everybody, like, you know, show of hands, how many of y'all in here shot your first duck over a GNH decoy? And of the people who, who were in the room and were, you know, listening and paying attention to the conversation, I would say more than half the people raised their hands. There's already that identity with GNH. and h you know, I tried to ask everybody, like, how many of y'all were a Delta member at the time that that happened? And, you know, Delta also has such an incredible legacy – I think the only organization at this show that is older than G&H is Delta, it's 1911.
0: 1911.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and and it's not just that, but Delta has shown this very very serious commitment to the science and the research. And you know the the card says the hunter, the duck hunters organization, and that's the tagline that you see. Um, it's it's there for the duck hunters, but it's there because of all this work that's being done by the research scientists and the trappers and the people that are ensuring. That the resource exists for a future generation, so we wanted to we wanted to try to find a way that we could give back, and we wanted to do something unique. I mean, anybody can just throw money at a problem, um, but we wanted to find some unique way to give back. And so we sponsored this this package. Uh, it's four people uh, come to Henrietta, come to the factory. We'll give you a tour of the factory during working hours, while all of our staff and our employees are there. Come down, you know, pull the lever, push the button on the machine. Uh, blow mold a few of your own decoys, take them and paint those decoys. Um, it's, you know, it's four people, you can do it as a group, spend an afternoon enjoying all this together. Uh, we get out of the factory, we go uh, out into the water. We have some really cool historic spots uh, very near our factory. Uh, I don't feel like I'm spot burning by saying this, but uh, uh, we've got some, some spots that are very, very well known in Oklahoma and have some real you know, history and legacy to them. We'll go look around, we'll try to find ducks for the next day. Uh, we'll go to dinner together that evening. We'll get up early the next morning, uh, and we'll go hunt and enjoy a hunt together, um, enjoying that resource that Delta is working so hard to, to support and maintain. And then uh, as soon as we get done with the hunt, we'll come back to the factory, and the winners of the package will walk through the factory and build a custom spread. Uh, do you ever do you ever watch the show King of the Hill? Yeah. And there was that episode where Bobby wanted to go to the potato chip factory so he could eat a chip off the line. Because that was like the freshest, best chip you could get. (laughs) Well, we'll give you the chip off the line. You can come down to the factory, and you can literally pick them out of the drying room if you want to uh, and build yourself a custom spread, decoys, rigs, everything that you need uh, to have that perfect decoy spread and package them up and take them home. And uh, so it's a unique thing that uh, we don't think anybody else in the industry can kind of offer. And it's, it's so cool. We've done these for a few other groups. We always get a huge response from these things. And so last night, we offered the package, and it it got bid up to a great, great amount of money. And then uh, the guy that was second runner-up, you know, that was kind of the losing guy. Well, it was very competitive all the way to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were barking back and forth at each other. And uh, the the guy who came in second said, well, okay, I'll match that if you guys will do a second one. So we did a second one. And then uh, we were standing on the side of the room uh, having beers with our wives. And uh, a Delta staffer came up and said, hey, there's a gentleman over here that wants to know if you would do, would you donate a third one to Delta if he will match that amount. And so we said, yeah, of course we'll do it. We're happy to. Jeez. So uh, we, we tripled, you know, what we originally raised and we're proud of that. And, and at the same time, we've done a bunch of these and we kind of enjoy them because uh, you were joking at the beginning about, you know, you don't want to overcommit to these. But with everything that's going on in the factory and as busy as we are, we don't often get time to hunt. So, and I think uh, I got it. I can't speak for I can't speak for Ben's wife, but my wife is like, you've been gone, you're working all the time. And now you're telling me that you're going hunting on Saturday. So it's kind of nice. Uh, we get these folks in here if if they're willing to pay that kind of money for a package. They're obviously very serious about what they want to come do with us. And so it's nice to. um have a, a morning outside with somebody that, sh- if they believe, if if they've paid the money to do this, they believe in what Delta's doing also. So we already Agreed. have that common bond. Yeah. So to go spend a morning with a group of people like that and enjoy the sunrise. And if we kill ducks, great. Uh, one of the best groups we had last year, the weather just didn't cooperate at all. And between the four of them, there was one duck killed. But they all said, this was so fantastic. We're going to buy this again next year and come do it again. so That's
0: cool. Do you, do you mind if I say how much was No, generated? no, go ahead because
2: it's well it's huge and that's the point and and i i think it you're going to say the figure in a minute but it it uh it really speaks volumes we're we're not a we're not a reputable long-term hunting lodge we're not professional hunting guides we're going to take these folks hunting we're going to be real in front of them we're going to show them things they spent this kind of money to come to come witness american manufacturing to come see a part and where these things that they love come from and and just to be be around us and go, hunt, go on a hunt.
0: I and mean, then they, go hunt with friends. And this yeah. kind
2: of money could have, could have bought them an excellent experience with a, with a lot of dead ducks and some fine meals in historic, great waterfowl lodges around the country. Yeah. Um, but instead, they donated serious chunk of change to Delta Waterfowl for the conservation impact it will have and a sneak peek at, at what we're doing.
0: Yeah, no, so, $24,000 raised between those those three
2: that's huge. It's huge. It's, it's absolutely
0: huge. huge. I mean that just to put it into real terms, that'll fund a whole crew of of researchers, summer technicians. That'll fund a whole project that you know, when we put out hen houses, we put them out um, 100 at a time. So we build, install, maintain for 10 years 100 hen houses, call that a super site. That costs us around $39,000. So the 24,000 gets you over halfway towards
1: that. I didn't so. even realize that. makes me feel good about a lot of baby ducks that are going to be flying around. Uh, and it is. It's a, it's a.
0: That's that's not insignificant. I, I promise you that's more, I don't care how hard you hunt, that's more ducks raised each year than you guys are going to shoot, at least mallards. So.
2: Well, and to be clear, and I'm glad we spoke about it, I'm glad we talked about it, highlighted what it was, but the real heroes are those folks that spoke up and bought that, spent yeah. the money and made that donation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for Ray and I, it's going to be some mornings putting decoys in the water and doing things we like to do anyway the the real hero there are the guys that wrote that check
0: well this is impressive this is really inspiring and I I trust that you guys are inspiring many others please keep it up and I don't know it sounds weird to say I'm I'm proud of you guys you know but yeah that is a weird feeling but that's what I'm feeling is pride (laughs) you know it's like, like I have something. No, I don't have anything to do with it, but I feel pride. No,
2: it's a testosterone. It's difficult for grown men to talk about feelings and yeah. and even even give each other compliments face-to-face. So, no, we appreciate it.
0: Yeah, well, awesome. Well, I appreciate you spending your time here with me on, on this podcast, coming and supporting Delta, what you guys did last night, what you guys do in, in your everyday lives. Conservation is obviously runs deep, deep in your veins. And, and, and I think, you know, buying... Making gear, selling gear, of course, you're making money. But, you know, be proud of that. But at the same time, you know, to have that conservation ethic, giving back, that's really important to me. I've always, it's always kind of bothered me when when it's just a take, 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 profit, profit, profit. Because hunters are conservationists and industry leaders are too. Not enough put that, that conservation feeling, you know, front and center, and you guys are doing that. And keep it up, motivate and and inspire others. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. You bet. Thanks for your time. We'll catch you later, guys. Thank you.